Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin, and welcome back to Star Wars. I've been doing episodes for all our $5 and above patrons every month on Star Wars. Right now I'm going through episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, arriving at the climax of that movie. And I'm so excited to introduce today's guest for this episode. We had him on before for our Kingdom of Heaven Patreon episode, 10,000 years ago when we did that. (laughs) Everyone welcome back, Luke, aka Luke is amazing. Thanks for coming back on. Hey, thank you for having me. I am uh, here, excited to discuss two assholes fighting on the side of a volcano. <laughs> Something I just can't get enough of. Uh, it's uh, it's great to come to this while I'm doing my, my Lord of the Rings episodes, because right mm-hmm. now I'm covering uh, Frodo and Sam and Gollum uh, on Mount Doom. And it's just so funny that it's just it is just basically the same thing. The volcano with the, mm-hmm. the hellish imagery and the corruption and then the friendship betrayed. Yeah, things work out a little happier in lord of the rings i guess <laughs> thankfully Gollum's there really just star wars needed Gollum, and everything would have worked out just fine oh man he just like he bites off anakin's finger for some reason <laughs> and anakin's like oh no what have i done <laughs> well, obi-wan you were right all along and obi-wan you goes, were right all along good thing Gollum was here he saved the day <laughs> if, only, if only jar jar had been more like Gollum, everything everything would have oh, worked man. out if only jar jar had been more like tom bombadil the even more true even more true i I don't know what that would end up looking like, and I'm certainly not going to attempt whatever uh, whatever accent would get me there. But uh, a Jar Jar Tom Bombadil accent—that is like that's the end game. Ooh. That's the final boss of accents right there. <laughs> that's uh, yeah. Somebody can do that, but certainly not me. <laughs> certainly not me either. Uh, but yeah, I was I was so looking forward to having you on for this part here. We're covering the the climactic duels between Anakin and Obi-Wan and also Yoda and Palpatine and this is this is probably my favorite part of Star Wars obviously I love the trench run and a bunch of other classic scenes from the originals as much as anyone mm-hmm. but I, I feel like the the kind of the weird detached stiffness that puts people off about the prequels this is this is there's still moments of that in here but like mm-hmm. this is the the least that in the prequels this is just catharsis this great operatic purge it's so big and emotional yeah, I think this is where Lucas makes good on a lot of the stuff that he's been trying to do here. Like, and I, I think that he gets, uh, he does the, um, the the thing where he's like trying to emulate the George George W. Bush, you know, if you're not with me, you're my enemy kind of thing. I, I, I know it's a, it's a lot, it's very heavy handed to some people, but to me, like... <laughs> That is the most Star Wars thing in the world. Like, I'm honestly surprised the Emperor doesn't, like, slant quote Palpatine, or the Emperor doesn't slant quote Nixon, you know, in in Return of the Jedi or something. Yeah, you know, I don't, (laughs) I don't know. People complain about it, and I'm like, you know, what did you expect? Yeah, subtlety has never, never been among uh, George Lucas's strengths. And no, and in, you know, in this case, the material doesn't need to be subtle. Like this is, this is dramatic. This is the, I feel like emotionally, like this is the prequels equivalent of the end of Empire, when you Mm. have Han being frozen and the, the I am your father moment. Uh, where it's just like it's just an open wound and it really it really gets to you and it's still I think it still looks great you know obviously there's some effects that have aged kind of poorly but overall I think this is peak peak CGI from from ILM but the core of it is is really it's really old stuff it's it's Lucas's tribute to all the literary and theatrical tragedies that inspired him that he loves so much and he's he's got the great line he says about the end of Revenge of the Sith just everyone dies and the bad guys win (laughs) that's (laughs) that's the end of this movie 
it feels very uh like like Mordor, like the end of Lord of the Rings to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Mustafar, uh, that that great shot of Anakin and his his Dark Lord hood, and he's overlooking the River of Magma, and he's got the, the yeah. tear in his eye. That could absolutely be uh, be Frodo in Mount Doom. I was I was looking at the the Mount Doom chapter earlier, and it just it has this description: of far away now, rising towards the south, the sun piercing the smokes and haze burned ominous, a dull bleared disk of red. But all Mordor lay about the mountain like a dead land, silent, shadow folded, waiting for some dreadful stroke. And he could have been given stage directions to this part of Revenge of the Sith right there. Mm-hmm. That's that's exactly what it looks like, right down to the sun with uh, looking all hazy and mean. Everything look everything looks evil on Mustafar. Yeah. Them's the rules. Yep. It it's it's horrifying. Uh it's a lava planet. And it's one of the things, you know, a lot of times people complain about, oh, all the Star Wars planets only have one biome. And <laughs> right. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, some a lot of them, yes, but um what, but like this is the planet that looks like, you know, when you see like, oh, we we found this like far off star and it's got these weird looking planets. And there's like one that's like, oh, it could have water on it, maybe. And the rest of them are like so close to the sun that they're basically just spe- Mustafar like repeated over, <laughs> over again. And you're like, look, he made it realistic. I don't know what you want. Like. It, it works on a planet that doesn't seem to support life at all. Yeah. Like, it is funny when, you know, like, Attack of the Clones has the water planet and the sand planet. Yeah. And, and that works because he's also just playing with different genres. But, yeah, Mustafar feels like, yeah, a place that no one is supposed to be. So, of course, Vader has to has to make it his swinging bachelor pad. Except for those two guys that work there. Except for those they two slide guys. by at the end. One thing that... uh. That is cool just about the background of Star Wars is that uh, Joe Johnston worked on the original movie. And Joe Johnston is uh, the guy who made uh, The Rocketeer, one of my favorite movies. He made the first Captain America. He made um, the third Jurassic Park, which uh, I remember having. I remember enjoying the theater, but I was also 10, so I had no taste. Uh, but he worked He worked on the on the original movie. He was doing a lot of um, a lot of sketches, some matte painting work. And he's talked about when he was doing that original movie, he had he'd done a series of, of sketches of what Darth Vader's home might look like. And he said there was a sea of lava his house looked out on. But before we got too far, George said we would save this for somewhere down the line. And this being George Lucas, that would be 28 years and six movies down the line. <laughs> but yeah, Lucas has said Mustafar has been around a long time. I've always had this set piece, the end between Obi-Wan and Anakin. I knew that's where this movie was going to end up. It's all this volcanic land with lava shooting up. So it's almost monochromatic in its red and blackness. I've had that image with me for a long time so here's the thing i'm kind of old uh <laughs> almost i'm almost 40 um but uh aren't we you all? know yeah yeah uh so you know i need you uh you know i just need you to to listen along to the story with me so the year is 1977 George, I was not alive then, uh, but, you know, and George Lucas is giving an interview to Rolling Stone magazine in which he's asked about the heavily implied duel between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader that left Vader more machine than man. In response, Lucas says, quote, Vader kills Luke's father. Then Ben and Vader have a confrontation just like they have in Star Wars, and Ben almost kills Vader. As a matter of fact, he falls into a volcanic pit and gets fried and is one destroyed being. End quote. And I mean, he definitely came through on that one. I'll give him that. <laughs> uh, the, the idea of the volcano duel was also later referenced by Kenobi's Force Ghost in the Return of the Jedi novelization. 
Fast forward 15 years to 1992 and fix your mind's eye on a pudgy nine-year-old ginger boy excitedly arguing uh, with his elementary school pals around the lunch table. You know, square pizza, box milk, <laughs> all that shit. Um, a small group are well prepared with opinions for the heated debate and wouldn't you know it, today's topic is Star Wars. They aren't discussing any event uh, from the original trilogy of films. At the time, the only trilogy, or something that uh, directly appeared in the expanded universe, novels or comics. Despite this, the event they're discussing was nevertheless considered an ironclad piece of established lore. Vader and Obi-Wan duly on the side of the volcano. You can imagine the arguments, though you'll have to discard anything about the Chosen One or the High Ground, as we didn't really have any ideas about those things yet. But, you know, how could Kenobi defeat the baddest man in the galaxy? Why would two best friends be dueling? Why did Anakin Skywalker betray the Jedi in the first place? Who was Anakin's mom? Or who was Anakin's wife? No, I'm just kidding. I don't think we ever (laughs) talked about that. Um, Because we were nine. Um, You know, (laughs) this argument had happened before. I'm just picturing a table full of Jake Lloyds just arguing with each other. Oh, man. Oh, man. I I wish uh, I, I never uh, no my hair uh, definitely not like Jake Lloyd uh, he he had me beat on hair you didn't have the, like the that. angelic little little bowl cut that's too bad no nope. <laughs> it's been curly all my life uh, so it was uh, probably some curly mop you know the like weird like curly hair that is very popular amongst Gen Z now that's kind of what my like, you were ahead of your frizzy, time what a what a tastemaker what a trendsetter yeah, oh man yeah I, I look like a I look like a, a TV preacher um from the 80s mm-hmm. um yeah uh so um yeah we kept coming back to this argument and somehow through cultural osmosis we had learned about the duel from Lucas's interview or from reading the novelization and it become an, and it became an established part of the canon on the same level as anything else that happened in the original trilogy. George said that's how it happened, so we accepted it into our collective headcanons. After all, it's not like there would be any more movies for us for <laughs> us to settle these debates, right? And that's very true. I don't know of a single <laughs> I don't think anybody really thought they were coming back until they came back. Um fast forward again. The date is May nineteenth. 2005 and i've just seen revenge of the sith in theaters over 15 years of anticipation finally culminated in watching obi-wan and anakin duel on the side of a volcano this is so much like my dreams it's scary the date is now march 15th 2023 i'm recording a podcast about the (laughs) anakin and obi-wan duel it is still one of my favorite moments in all of star wars and I hope you enjoy this recreation of a debate that I've been having for about three decades, but never seemed to tire of. <laughs> and it seems like Lucas thought about it that long. You can tell that he always had this in mind as the culmination of Anakin's character arc, because he he's been building up to it all through the, the last few movies. In the first movie, we saw Anakin's pain at losing his mother and his confusion at being rejected by the Jedi just because he still had human feelings about it. Little bastard. How dare he? Yep. In the second movie, we saw that that pain and confusion fuel his rage, first at his surrogate dad, Obi-Wan, for holding him back, and then at the entire village of Tusken Raiders, who took his mother away from him for good. And now in this movie, we've seen him desperately latch on to Padme, and Palpatine has expertly weaponized Anakin's feelings and turned them against the Jedi and the Separatists, basically anyone in Palpatine's way. And Yoda set that up, you know, the fear led to anger, which led to hatred, which led to suffering for Anakin, as well as all the people he's, you know, hurt and killed. 
Mm-hmm. Of course, Yoda was wise enough to see it coming, but not wise enough to do anything about it. <laughs> Anakin has the opposite problem. He thinks he's powerful enough to stop anything from happening, even death, especially death. So Padme finally decides to to do a thing in this movie. That's one of, the, as I said before, that's one of the, the things I like less about Revenge of the Sith is I think she got more interesting stuff to do in the last couple movies. Uh, mm. Less so in this one, which partially I think just a product because she has to play the role of pregnant yeah. mother. She has a couple a couple of good scenes. She has a couple of moments where she makes actual decisions. And here she decides to go find Anakin. And she uh, she says that, you know, there's no danger, that the fighting is over. And like, there's all these, like, little ironic lines tossed into this part of the movie where you have, like, uh, Bail Organa saying, oh, the war is over, like, very ironically, or Palpatine yeah. whispering, we shall have peace. I like that, that emphasis that, like, that's how the Emperor is selling this. He's like, the war is over, the horrible, devastating war that somebody started, not me. Mm-hmm. So it that's, wasn't me. I didn't do it. That's the, his, the perverse kind of sting in the tail is this is peace. This means the war is over. We can all get back to living our lives, except that, you know, the worst person in the galaxy is in charge. Details. Yeah, details. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and besides, Padme says, this is personal. But the personal has been political the whole time. That's something I've been talking about in the prequel episodes is how much Lucas jumps back and forth between Anakin's arc and the bigger picture politics and they line up in all these interesting ways. And of course, Padme is going to be fine because as she says, C-3PO will look after me. C-3PO can't even look after himself. <laughs> like he gets blown apart in Empire Strikes Back. Like you are, you are so much better relying on R2 in any situation that might cause violence. I... Oh man, I I love I love that line. Um, and three PO is just like so oblivious. He's like, I'm finally getting the hang of flying. You know, like, oh, uh, look at me, I'm I'm learning. Like he's like genuinely happy. And C three PO's character arc is complete. Padme's life, her entire universe is crumbling around her, and three PO's like. Can you believe? Look, I, I, this is I'm, this is like riding a bike. Mom, I look! I can't wait to tell R two. Yeah, mom, you're not looking. This is a big mom, deal for me. I'm the third Skywalker child. Someone look. acknowledge me. When is someone yeah. going to try to make me into a Sith? We'll get to you, three PO. We'll get to you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's yeah. Natalie Portman does get a, a couple nice little moments here. They bring back across the stars into the score as she lands, and there's this little moment where she just pauses and breathes, and you can see her just like everything just catch up with her <laughs> that's happening, yeah. and she has to do. And then uh, she sees Anakin. We get that great shot of Anakin at a distance. He's like walking around a tower, and you see him pause and take off his hood and come running. And it's all done silently, like that great bit earlier in the movie where they're just looking at each other across the city. You know, when they when the when when they get to shut up for a while, you do feel that I think the chemistry between them when they're not yeah. not struggling as much with the dialogue. They do have some chemistry when like they hug. Yeah, like, exactly. It, it, I, Natalie Portman is a great actress, obviously, and I'm not here to uh, slag Hayden Christensen. He, he, <laughs> That's he does done his enough. best, and in this case, with an impossible task. But you know, like in those moments, like you can feel it, and maybe that's just because you know she's you know a very you know powerful strong woman and he's obviously like a huge you know very ripped dude um but you know like they sell that a lot better than you know him trying to do the f- forsooth yawn late you know sh- <laughs> lucas's half shakespeare exactly you know, shit. exactly i was saying earlier we had you had it on for that kingdom of heaven episode and i'm like if we slotted orlando bloom in here he's not also a particularly great actor but he's used to saying things he's used to this kind of arch dialogue just from like yeah. the lord of the rings and the pirates of the caribbean 
So maybe maybe he'd have an easier time. But but Lucas has said that like for him the dialogue really is just a sound effect, and that yeah. he's trying to communicate as much as he can visually. And you get that with just the the overwhelming red of Mustafar, the Sith color, the angry color, color of love. And then you get this little mm-hmm. bit of blue, the hint of the Jedi color on the the blue lights on the platform behind Padme when she's talking to Anakin. Like that's that's where she's coming from. That's her side. Mm-hmm. And then then they go away in the close up when she mentions killing the kids. Or I, I'm sorry, younglings, because because we're, we're we're not going to say killing kids over and over in this movie, which is which is a version of it I wish I could watch. Lucas knew that you, if you're going to have a chosen one, you have to fucking destroy them you have to kill them mm-hmm. like he and whoever wrote the bible knew the it two, was george like lucas they, yeah, exactly it's like poetry it rhymes um <laughs> he, uh, he knew that you have you have to kill that you have to destroy the chosen one utterly otherwise it doesn't work because they have all the power if they do not get laid completely low then it doesn't work and he did it he Fucking did it. He showed them killing kid. He showed him killing children <laughs> in a PG-13, in a Star Wars movie. Like, for everything else you could say that, like, Star Wars is a movie for kids, fine. You're not showing the end of this movie to your kid until they are, like, 10 or 11 or 12. No, like, like the, the early. The burning like, upset me again this time. Like, yes. it's, like I flinched. It's visceral. It's, it's horrifying. Upsetting. And he chokes Padme? Oh, good yeah, God. Yeah, uh, like, I, I lingers on that, yeah. I understand what they're going for. I, you know, oh, it's appropriate, completely but understand, it's But it's like, Jesus Christ. Like, it's so visceral. The end of this movie is just so fucking visceral. It is, because it's all... It's all uh, action and it's like all the the rhetoric kind of gives way to gestures and and fighting mm-hmm. and and it, but it all comes out of their relationships like part of what's so messed up about Anakin killing those kids is he's trying to save Padme from dying in childbirth so like at mm-hmm. some level like he's trying to kill his own kids cuz he'd yes. rather keep Padme alive uh which you know that that uh that adds a whole another layer to his relationship to Luke when you get backslash forward to the original movies mm-hmm. um and so yeah padme mentions the whole you know obi-wan told me that you went full king herod on, on a bunch <laughs> of kids in the jedi temple what's up with that and of course you know anakin just says obi-wan is trying to turn you against me not i yeah. didn't kill those kids but no Obi- <laughs> obi-wan's trying to turn you against me so right right away he's uh he's he's letting her know that it's true I have a quick question. Have you ever read the novelization of this? Yes, I have. I okay. really like the novelization. Of okay. This, yeah. Okay, cool. Because that like that line is like I was like if you just pulled that like completely out of thin air it, because there's a line in it where Padme thinks when he says that Padme thinks yes. not I didn't kill those children, <laughs> not I didn't help the emperor take over. Just Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan. Is, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's what cuz that's what it all is cuz that's Anakin's Got his jealous, petty feelings about his dad, Obi-Wan. Yeah. And uh, like when uh, Padme says, uh, you know, Obi-Wan, he, Obi-Wan wants to help us. And, and Anakin just says, us. And that, yeah. that kind of thing Christensen actually pr- plays pretty well. I think the, the little paranoia in those moments, maybe not yeah. when he starts yelling later, but the quieter. Uh, Lucas has said he wanted Christensen to sound kind of more like the Emperor in a moment like that. Like he feels confident and he feels self-assured, but he just really doesn't like being challenged. And... Obi-Wan finding out that Anakin's been uh, diving into Padme's Sarlacc pit, like that's that's Anakin's ultimate Freudian nightmare. That his his dad's gonna find out that he's having sex with the woman he's used to replace his mom. And of course, yeah. Anakin immediately brings up his mom here, unprompted, that he he won't he won't lose her like like he did his mother. 
That's that's what's driving him throughout this whole movie is he he lost a mom and he can't lose his wife. Oh man, he needs a mom at all times. He's got to have a mom. And in the end he gets Luke and that uh, you know, same thing basically. Right, exactly. Got the obsession with fathers in the original trilogy and that starts to there's still some of that in the prequels, but it starts to become the mother obsession that uh that Anakin develops. And uh of course he tells, you know, Padme that uh that he's yeah he's doing it all for her. I can only you know love can't save you. Only my new extremely vague powers can do that. Which Anakin, yeah. buddy, Pal- <laughs> I love how brutal Palpatine is with the bait and switch. When as soon as Anakin has helped him killed Mace Windu, Palpatine is like, yeah, about those powers that I implied that I have. Uh, turns out, <laughs> I didn't get that one out of my master before I killed him. But I'm sure we can figure it out. And Anakin's like, oh yeah, sure, like yeah, it'll be it'll, it'll take like 15 minutes. We'll be good. Right. Like- I got I got nothing but time. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and and when he says to Padme, like, I did this for you, and she's like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. Exactly. It, Great. Now all like, this is on my shoulders. Yeah, all, like, all, I think, yeah, I think the weight of the the galaxy falls on her at that. Like, even if it hadn't before, like, that's the moment where she's like, oh, God, he really did do this all. Oh, my God. <laughs> what if I married? Yeah, he's, yeah, like, yeah, you're you're taking over the galaxy for me. But then when she's like, let's just run for it let's just go into exile like we did in attack of the clones but for real he says no well like if it's all for her then you should be like fuck Mm -hmm. it let's go that's what you know that's what real movie romance ought to be but he's he's already he's already too far in and so he says well no we'll just we'll we'll rule the galaxy together which sounds sounds very familiar I guess it's canonical now that that's just that's Vader's only pitch. That's what he tries whenever his backup is against the wall. Let's rule the galaxy together, you and me. Like he, you know, me, me and you. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, all yeah. he's got. I, if he'd gotten to meet Leia, he would have he would have tried it. Hope for the third time's the charm. Oh yeah, there's a there uh, the old uh, Infinity series, ah. which is in the old can the old EU. Yeah. Uh, they yeah there there's one of those where he turns Leia to the dark side and and she becomes his. Uh, his uh his apprentice and i think that's the one where yoda pilots the death star into coruscant and kills like the entire planet or something like that excellent yeah it's wild that might be a different one but that does happen too so yeah i'm just picturing in my head it's just it's a beautiful sight yeah uh but yeah i love i love anakin's just like left field master plan to overthrow palpatine and make himself the emperor because like Mm -hmm. that's you know it's it's hard to believe he genuinely wants to do that. Like that that just feels like his way of coping with the realization that uh oh I fucked up everything forever, didn't I? So I'll fix it by killing the emperor and take you know. At least at least with Padme, he didn't cut off her hand first the way he did when he made this pitch to Luke. Clearly, he, yeah. he learned his lesson there, I guess. Uh, but she still says no because because Padme is the the embodiment of liberal democracy to the bitter bitter end. She will have no part in this, and um. And she follows up on Yoda's, what, you know, what Yoda said to Obi-Wan about, you know, Darth Vader has consumed Anakin whole. She says, you're not the same person, which is nice of mm-hmm. Lucas to write it that way, all to justify Obi-Wan's uh, blatant motherfucking lie. I'm sorry, his certain point of view in the original movie that yeah, that Vader Luke, killed your father. Lucas is very insistent on this, and, <laughs> and he, he has been it's since cute. before. Yeah, he, I, he has been, like, since... I believe since this, like, Anakin and Vader became the same person between A New Hope and Empire. Exactly. Part of it is, like, he's like, yeah, like, uh, so I can make this certain point of view line work. But I think part of it also is, you know, like, he's like, this is a completely different person. You change who you are. And that's, like, something that they kind of use a lot with, like... 
people who go to the dark side in it. Like you, you, you know, you change and when you take on this new name, you take it, well, yeah, whatever, you know, it's, it's all, I mean, it's all gilding the lily, but you know. Oh you yeah, know. no, you're totally right. Like, I, yeah, I, the, the idea works that changing to the dark side is so transformative. You may as well be a different person entirely, but yeah, it all, it is also just such a retcon to make Obi-Wan mm-hmm. not a total liar. <laughs> yeah. So I love that every character has to keep sticking to this metaphor. We're all independently coming up with this metaphor, everyone. <laughs> coincidentally but anakin uh just blames obi-wan for everything and when he sees him there he he lashes out at padme and that's an interesting little wrinkle that really who knows if obi-wan thought about this how anakin would react when he saw obi-wan on padme's ship because duh of course anakin assumes padme brought obi-wan with her on purpose so obi-wan inadvertently got her killed and that really that just his that's something i like about revenge of the sith is how no one's hands are ever clean at this point in the movie like everyone is involved with how how messed up this situation has gotten and so you get the standoff between the two of them and uh the music really does a good job of selling all this john williams has those those, those sad minor chords right before the action breaks out and he starts ramping up the tempo and uh and ewan mcgregor of course is, is making this work he really is you know the actor that i think comes out the cleanest through the prequels manages to oh, yeah. to find an arc all the way through uh, he's he's definitely outshining the other two and yeah he's he's you can he's selling the the shock and the outrage at this point like he's He's devastated, but also like what he said to Yoda earlier in the movie, like, please don't send me. I can't kill Anakin. I can't fight him. And now he's ready to like after seeing what Anakin did to Padme, he's angry enough that he's like as sad as he is. He's ready to fight. Yeah, I think Anakin, something that Anakin or something that Obi-Wan can't do is like he 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 can't he can't kill Anakin. He really can't. And um, but he does like when he sees the choke, like, that's the thing. Like, he was going to try and talk him out of it the whole time. Like, he was going to, like, to talk as hard as he could. And he sees that, and he's like, well, fuck. All right. I get, you know, he he's he's too, if he's doing that to Padme, he's too far gone. He's not my friend anymore, you know. That's true. Exactly. That's the, again, back to the, the idea of him changing. Like, the person he knew yeah. would never even think of doing something like that. Because, yeah, that's, Anakin, that's supposed to be what you were saving her from. Remember? <laughs> remember that being your whole thing and now you've done your classic uh again the classic tragic character arc where you end up doing the thing you were working so hard to avoid which is exactly what obi-wan like directly tells anakin at this point and anakin starts monologuing like right to the audience about bringing justice and security but yeah right there in the background you just see obi-wan just quietly kneel and check padme's pulse like no anakin this is what you're actually doing though (laughs) like force vibe check exactly he's uh yeah he's both uh he's both a budding fascist now and and a domestic abuser uh he was trying to save padme he was trying to save the republic he got rejected by both and now he chooses domestic violence and also fascism in space and Obi-Wan, in response, pledges allegiance to the flag and the republic for which it stands, like you were probably doing right before you, you had your lunchtime debate uh, with, with, the, oh, yeah. with the square pizza and the box of milk and the tiny carrots they give you. You pledge your allegiance to the republic, and that's what Obi-Wan's doing right now. And then, yeah, like you said earlier, we get, we get Anakin quoting George W. Bush, which, yeah, that makes a lot of people roll their eyes. But, you know, I think it's interesting that he, you know, Lucas started writing this stuff in the 90s or even the, you know, the roots of it even mm-hmm. earlier than that. And it just kind of naturally developed to this point because I think he he hit on a structure that unfortunately was happening again in America as the movies were coming out. So at, th- at this yeah. point, yeah, I think he kind of he kind of earned the the obviousness of that one. He 
I mean, he he like he called like Amer- and I mean, he's not obviously not the first one. He's obviously doing it behind the veneer of this space opera. But he called America's descent into fascism. If you you know come out in two thousand five and say to someone, you know, America's descending into fascism, they'd laugh in your face. They'd be like, yeah, well, maybe we shouldn't be in Iraq, but you know, like. They're not going to say that. And now when we look back, it's like, no, this has been a project for years. And like we, you know, we as America as a country have let it happen in the background. And it really kind of vindicates a lot of Revenge of the Sith because he's just like, look, this is, what, you know, this is what's going to happen. I doubt that he uh, he thought it was going to happen so quickly or even, you know, that (laughs) it was like that it was good, you know, that the Anakin moment was going to happen, you know, to with America so soon. But he fucking called the shot. Sometimes you just hit it out of the park. Yeah. And I I think something he nailed specifically was how well-intentioned establishment liberal types uh, react in that situation. That's that I think he nailed with the Jedi and with Obi-Wan specifically. Uh, like we see how Obi-Wan handles it here when he says that that beautiful line only a Sith deals in absolutes which as everyone has pointed out is an absolute like you just that like that sentence eats itself like that. Yeah, the aura the Ouroboros of uh of sentence structure exactly yeah. so like Obi-Wan you don't even realize that you've just done the thing you're saying is bad and for me like that's that sums up the Jedi in these in the prequel movies where they don't realize just how much legitimacy they they keep giving away until the ground falls out from under their feet. And as, you know, as Obi-Wan pulls out his lightsaber, you see the the, the, the great shot of the sun I was talking about earlier, and it's all it's starting to get it all all eclipsed by the dark clouds. And it makes me think of that uh, that bit in Attack of the Clones, where it's right after Anakin has one of his dreams about his mother dying, and he's looking out at the, the lake on Naboo, and we see the sun covered up with a couple of clouds. It looks like a yin and yang symbol. And now it's Revenge of the Sith, so it's just the, the it's full eclipse, like we're covered up by the clouds. It's It's full darkness. I fucking love it. Him, like the way that he pulls the lightsaber out, he's so deliberate, but like, you just like the way that he like flips his, his, his right hand out. He like flips his hand out and the blade comes on and I'm just like, God damn, man. (laughs) Like that, like, I don't know why. I mean, I do know why, because I love and worship the lightsaber, but like, like he just oh, fucking nails it. So, since I'm a guy who likes to dig into the lore and the side stories of these universes, I wanted to talk about two pieces of Expanded Universe content. One from the old Legends continuity that isn't technically considered canon anymore, and the new Disney canon. I think it shows the depth that exists within these films, and or the ideas of these films, and the intense hold that these characters and moments have on us on a cultural level. Let's start with something from the Disney canon and then come back to the Legends continuity a bit later. And so what we see here is the beginning of the redemption of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And he's the ostensible hero of this film, if it could be said to have one. And it truly brings the conflict at the heart of the character to the forefront. And that conflict being that Kenobi is supposed to be the good guy, our kindly mentor and hermit wizard friend. But every subsequent appearance he makes in the series further complicates him into an increasingly morally dubious figure. Yet we still love him. In A New Hope, he's just old Ben, the old man who gives us the best 
ex- bit of exposition in movie history, teaches Luke about the Force for about eh, eight minutes while they're riding the bus together and then dies to save our heroes. By the end of Empire, we find out that he lied to Luke about his dad and uh, about who his dad was and what happened, which Kenobi conveniently explains away in Return of the Jedi by by saying it was true from a certain point of view. So at the end of the original trilogy, he's a bit cheeky, but still our beloved old master. It's not really his fault they rewrote the lore and turned A New Hope into one two-hour-long anachronism in the series. But then you get to the prequels, and they seem to go out of their way to make us question this mental image. I think Lucas did this on purpose, obviously. Uh, first, we see a young Obi-Wan who's very stuffy and by the book and kind of also a dick. Mm-hmm. He has that really weird another useless life form comment in episode <laughs> one and seems to be a completely overbearing master to Anakin in episode two. Though in clones, he's always read more, uh, read as more of an overwhelmed single parent to the galaxy's biggest over, uh, superpowered messiah toddler to mm-hmm. me <laughs> instead of a total <laughs> asshole. But you know, your motivation may or your mileage may vary on that one. Either way, you know, uh, he's he's not he's not the Obi Wan we think of. But much worse than this, we find out that Obi Wan and or the Jedi also left Anakin's mother. Uh, also left uh, Anakin's mother enslaved on Tatooine and didn't move to help her at all. That's not cheeky or roguish. That's just downright evil. I mean, there are valid explanations offered for Kenobi's specific failure to do anything. He wasn't allowed to leave the temple for a few years as the Order oversaw the Chosen Ones training closely. But still, that's not explained in the movie. Seriously, what the fuck, old Ben? Uh, Then he has to be rescued by Parkour Yoda at the end of the movie. And (laughs) they really don't follow up on Dooku revealing the entire plot behind everything to Kenobi. They just, he never mentions that to Mace or Yoda or anyone. It's like, yeah, we kind of chatted, but you know what? Like, nobody does anything about this. It's... You know, it it doesn't get much better in episode three. Kenobi does some genuine heroics. uh, He does some genuine heroics and we see some warmth between he and Anakin. But there's also a cascade of terrible decisions by Kenobi before the end. He gets Anakin to agree to spy on the Chancellor. He's still too beholden to the Jedi ideals to see the big picture. He didn't fucking know that Anakin and Padme were together. Like... Kenobi, you moron, you absolute (laughs) fucking rube. Uh, This is the guy we're supposed to think of as a wise sage master, the one who sacrificed himself to save his young protege and eventually the galaxy. So how are we going to resolve all of this? How do we connect the Obi-Wans of the first two trilogies together? Well, the duel, as we will discuss, goes a long way to doing that. Obi-Wan admits his faults and failures. He reaches within and bests the Chosen One. He rescues Padme so that Luke and Leia can be born. But we're still left with an incomplete picture. The gap between the two Obi-Wans is still great, and it would eventually be left to the expanded content to resolve this. One of the issues with the prequels is that they are so ambitious that they simply cannot contain all of the world-building and threads that Lucas wanted to stuff into them. Yep. That's why people sometimes, rightly, I think, get annoyed <laughs> at their incompleteness. The skeleton of something great is there, but there's just too much to fit into less than nine hours of film. In fact, it 
was so ambitious that the prequels necessitated seven seasons of the Clone Wars animated series and two seasons of the Bad Batch to further explore the depths of these ideas. In truth, the Clone Wars does so much to bridge the gap for Obi-Wan, but it's far too expansive to nail down a single example. Um, and so I turned to a different source. In 2017, Lucasfilm released a collection of short stories called From a Certain Point of View in celebration of the 40th anniversary of A New Hope. These short stories cover characters who appear in A New Hope and new characters and expand on what they were doing and thinking around these events. In 2020, they released a second, from a certain point of view, short story collection for the 40th anniversary of Empire. And this is where it all leads. A short story called There Is Always Another by Mackenzie Lee. It's written from Obi-Wan's point of view as a for force ghost where he and Yoda are trying in vain to talk Luke out of ending his training early and going on to get his ass kicked by dear old dad on Cloud City. But Kenobi isn't mad at Luke or even Anakin. Uh, he's exasperated that the younger uh, Skywalker is so much like his father, but he's also still heartbroken at his failure, despondent over how he fucked up Anakin's training. And it's just heartbreaking, but it's also a little funny. So I've just got a couple of things from it here. He basically is materializing as a force ghost. And one of the first things he says is, uh, you know, Yoda had the entire galaxy at his fingertips. Uh, but he had been so determined to make a meal of his martyrdom that he chose Dagobah as his refuge, the only planet that smells worse than the Jedi Temple training rooms. <laughs> so right off the bat, it's like Yoda just... Come on, buddy. He, then it's uh, the Jedi Order may have died out, but their dedication to posturing theatrics is alive and well in Master Yoda. Beautiful. But like the thing about this is that it gives you this sense for how much Obi-Wan loves Anakin and how he tried and how like even after he's dead, it still fucks with him about how bad he screwed everything up. And um, he talks about... Uh, his old uh, dreams were replaced by me jolting awake in the middle of the night thinking Anakin probably doesn't know how to swim. I have to teach him how to swim. How do you teach someone to swim? Like, and it's stuff like that. And I'm just like, it just like, it's, it's heartbreaking. Like, yeah. I mean, I know like Anakin obviously does like a bunch of awful shit, but like, <laughs> it's just, um, you know, there's something in here about like how he how Anakin cried the first time he saw rain. Like it's wow. just like he's just like a a little kid and like and I mean there's you know some stuff in here like uh, more stuff about Yoda but then he's like 900 years is too long. It's enough time to see all the ways this galaxy is rotten and Yoda's had to witness more than his share and like I think about it and it's like yeah 900 years is too long for someone to live. Mm -hmm. Like exactly. You know Methuselah you Methuselah ass <laughs> frog um uh, he, he says, you know, something that, that you talked about in your attack of the clones, uh, stuff. He said, he says, I had always doubted Anakin and he had felt that wobble in our foundation from the start. And it's just like, you know, he's just, he's reading his own litany of sins and, um, uh, he says later, how is it that I've dealt with this family for generations and still haven't figured out how to get through to them? <laughs> I don't want to lose you to the emperor the way I lost I fumble. 
What I want to say is Anakin. What I want to say is my best friend. What I want to say is your father. The way that the way we both lost him, I want to say, to a needless war, to a wild heart, to a doomed prophecy. Instead, I finish Vader. And this is obviously retconning, you know, his stuff about Vader. But at the same time, yeah, it does a good job of retconning powerful. it. So you mm-hmm. know what? Who gives a shit? Um, you know, and then he has this whole thing where he like, in his head chides Yoda for like giving Anakin such a hard time and you know and then he like gets onto himself like he says I don't know why I'm defending Anakin even in my own head especially after he killed me um and he talks about how like Anakin Luke and Anakin like you know they dig these deep roots he's like he says just like his father with Anakin it was his mother then Qui-Gon and me and Ahsoka and Padme childhood abandonment resulting in him clinging with white knuckles to whoever was nearest to him and there's and this is the part that gets me the first year he was a Padawan I would sometimes wake in the middle of the night to find him asleep on the floor next to my bed afraid he'd wake and find me gone too he's like a puppy Uh like a like it's just like we're gonna talk about why this is anakin's fault later but at the same time (laughs) you're just like they didn't give him a chance yeah (laughs) and that's what you know palpatine unfortunately sees that too and he's like i know how to play that yeah and i like this line he he's talking about when luke gets in the x-wing he turns he turns back to us just for a moment and there he is again the dumb beautiful son of my dumb beautiful friend who could never be (laughs) talked out of anything he set his mind to and and then he he gets unto himself again for every way the council had broken anakin down i stood by and let them i've been the arbiter of justice repeating the language they had given me and you just like it's I it just builds Obi Wan up and like I you know I just can't hate him like he's just yeah he's still Obi Wan like even with all of this that's that's why we can't quit Obi Wan he's just this tragic figure and you know he's our tragic figure mm-hmm. and now is like a cultural touchstone of the arch archetypical uh archetypal mentor couldn't get everything in there he couldn't contain all of it within the prequels just like you couldn't do with it anakin slash vader there's just too much stuff and it necessitated the content to fill these gaps and i understand you know that bothers some people and that's completely understandable but at the same time uh i like it uh so yeah it also you know with kenobi it also just helps that you and mcgregor just he likes doing it he really likes it he's really good at it yeah that adds to it but that's yeah that's great that's uh all that that fleshes him out so beautifully and one of you know one of the things i always liked i think a lot of people like about alec guinness's performance much as he didn't enjoy it in the first movie is you do you do get a sense of a of a man with a bigger history than can ever be told you do get the sense he's been through adventures that that wouldn't even make sense to you or luke and he has he has that kind of presence and so we get into the fight, the Anakin-Obi-Wan fight. And uh, while shooting, Lucas came up with the idea of how this should start, that Anakin should be keeping his back turned to Obi-Wan the whole time, even when Obi-Wan pulls out the lightsaber just to set up. He doesn't even doesn't even need to fear his old master. And so then stuntmaster Nick Gillard, who's really one of the, the heroes of these movies, had to come up with like the backward jump flip thing mm-hmm. <laughs> that Anakin has to do if he's going to be uh, have his back facing against Obi-Wan from the start. And uh, Hayden Christensen said uh, the saber fights are like being six-year-old kids again, buying the best toy in the store and getting to go home and play with it for two weeks with your best friend. Nick was there every day during rehearsals, correcting us and making sure that every single minute detail was right. Even if we were making mistakes, we had him there on the sidelines saying it was still all good. It's his fight, so he deserves all the credit. 
Ewan McGregor said, I'm very happy with all the fighting scenes. They're incredibly exhausting to do, which, yeah, I think you can tell because it's such an intense burst of energy. But Hayden and I have gotten them to such a pitch that they're incredibly fast. We do those fight scenes fantastically well. I think it's all right to say that. Yes, it is. (laughs) Because after you've done them and you look at the playback, it looks extraordinary. And yeah, I I agree. I think this fight still looks great. I think it looks... uh, better i think than the climactic fight in clones i I love them twisting and turning around each other like a dance at one point there's a bunch of great punchy sounds like there's just just enough like grunts and gasps from mcgregor to to lend some realism to it like he's like obi-wan is just barely keeping up with anakin so yeah it's a it's a great fight like they worked on i believe they trained on it together for like five months and none of it is sped up so they're like they're fighting that fast in the in the it's it's not sped up at all and i just i love that they just did this and they just worked on it so long until they could you know they just nailed it like it's just so fast and they get so sweaty it's great it's just great and then we cut to yoda and palpatine <laughs> so like i was saying earlier the end of revenge of the sith is similar to the end of empire strikes back it's it's everything is on a smaller scale it's a focus on just a couple of characters you know you have the the big shiny battles at the end of the other ones uh, at the ends of uh, at the ends of new hope return of the jedi phantom menace attack of the clones but both revenge of the sith and empire strikes back have their large scale fight at the beginning instead so they kind of they kind of narrow down into a different structure but empire strikes back had everyone on cloud city that's where everything was taking place. You know, Han and Leia were there. Then Luke got there. Attack of the Clones brings everyone to Geonosis. Return of the Jedi has everyone on or above Endor. Phantom Menace has everyone on or above Naboo. Revenge of the Sith is a little different because it keeps cutting back and forth between Mustafar and Coruscant, which don't directly have anything to do with each other. They're across the galaxy from each other. So the link isn't directly in terms of plot. It's more about more about theme and how the, the two kind of come together in terms of the ideas and the overall story. You got the personal fight going on in Mustafar, and then you got the political fight on Coruscant, which fits those two settings. The backdrop of Mustafar is about passion and hate and all the, the lava and everything sinking. And the backdrop of Coruscant is about the control of the government, like they're, they're literally fighting in the, in the Senate chamber. And those have been parallel tracks all through the prequels, the, the political fight and the, the more personal struggle. And so yeah. the, the Yoda-Palpatine fight... I mean, it's arguably the more important fight, strictly in terms of the whole, like, Republic has just become an empire thing. Like, there's a reason Yoda saved himself for Palpatine, because Palpatine is the one in charge. Yoda is the stronger fighter. This is kind of more center stage in terms of that. But the the tone doesn't really give you that, which I think is fine. I think it works that you have the Anakin-Obi-Wan fight as the big tragedy, the big emotional open wound. And the Yoda-Palpatine fight is, is more of a comedy. Like, I love Yoda just walks in and just, like, knocks out the guards with, like, his pinky. <laughs> like, doesn't yeah. even break his sweat. And then he, he uses the, his big thunder effect, which I love in these movies, to send Palpatine, like, sailing backward in his chair. And he's got the legs above his head. Yeah. And Palpatine <laughs> is telling him he's been waiting for this a long time, my little green friend. Like, he's, you know, like, he's Kermit. Uh, it's, yeah. a, it's a very different tone. And I know that, you know, that doesn't work for some people. I think some people overlook that that kind of stuff was also in the original trilogy. Like, if you go back to, like, again, I was talking about Han in the the Carbonite Mm -hmm. chamber earlier. Like, that's, you know, people point out as, like, the big agonizing, mature, dramatic moment. I love you. I know. And, you know, the music's rising and Chewbacca's, like, screaming his head off. And then as soon as Han is frozen, the movie cuts to 3PO in parts on Chewie's back. Going, get Chewbacca, what's happening? What's happening? I can't see. 
So that <laughs> that kind of tonal whiplash has always been part of Star Wars. I don't blame <laughs> anyone for being thrown off by it, but I think that's that's always been part of it, uh, for better or for worse. Yeah, I, the thing I like with the uh, the Yoda Palpatine fight is just that it like uh, uh, Ian McDermott is just like cackling to himself the whole time like he's case to wipe his mouth at one point like he's just like he's just like cackling and and he's fucking loving he's been waiting for so long for this but one thing i also do think about like is what if like somehow obi-wan was like no i'm just not gonna go fight anakin you've got to do it and then and so like he goes to fight the emperor he dies of course uh but you know yoda the fucking guts anakin just kills his ass and then these exactly two yeah, the, the anakin starts going to his speech about how he's delivered peace and justice to his new empire and yoda just like rolls his eyes and it's like when indy shoots the guy in raiders of the lost ark into yeah. his belly button he throws <laughs> exactly. a lightsaber into his chest Over like he does with the clone yeah, yeah. alas alas that we don't live in that timeline so we're cutting back and forth between the two duels and this is one of the the great examples of the cross cutting that i love in star wars i've been talking a bunch about in these episodes all the ways that lucas plays storylines with different uh, tone and pace and setting off each other as they all contribute to the story structure and lucas you know loves editing has always gone on and on about editing and has talked a lot about the possibilities of digital editing while he was making these movies, when he was making Revenge of the Sith, he said specifically that over the last 30 years, the sophistication of the audience's cinema knowledge has really grown. Back when I was shortcutting, it was unusual. I shortcut by not holding long shots, not doing establishing shots, and by making large leaps forward in the editing. When I was doing the first Star Wars, I was reasonably avant-garde. Now it's completely accepted because people's skill at reading images in motion is much better. Younger audiences can pretty much follow everything because they see a commercial, they see music videos, they do it in video games. Their ability to see things and follow them is much more acute, and that's just a matter of the culture learning. And it's interesting that 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 has just that trend has just accelerated so much since these movies came out that something I think is so funny is I remember when these movies came out and a lot of people were talking about them as just like just like noise on the screen, it's just like a digital headache, and they look the prequels look quaint compared to some movies that have come out since them because of how like kind of patient Lucas is with his editing almost to a fault yeah. sometimes making it boring, but he's just, he's very slow and he doesn't like shaky shots or shots that are too quick. So yeah, this is, Revenge of the Sith looks like it came out in the twenties now, which I think is really funny given how it was received at the time. <laughs> yeah. So the Anakin Obi-Wan duel, we see them fighting it out inside the various buildings in the place where the the, uh, the Separatist leaders were hiding out. Uh, Anakin uh, starts choking Obi-Wan. He starts using it's choking Obi-Wan with his hands, not with the Force, which of course is what he did to Padme and what he will do to the greatest hero in the trilogy, in the original trilogy, the guy who stands up to him in the boardroom meeting in the first movie. And, you know, Vader finds his lack of faith disturbing. We see him Force choke uh, <laughs> people all over the trilogy, but... All over both trilogies, but now he's choking Obi-Wan with his hand because it's it's much more visceral, like you were saying earlier. Like he's it's so personal with Obi-Wan, he wants Obi-Wan to feel it. And you see that that feral grin on Anakin's face. Like he's he's getting off a little bit on actually doing it to Obi-Wan, not just with the force. We see those great acrobatics on the table where again you can you can see the sweat and the work they put in, like when Christensen has to do that flying kick. Like just imagine how much he <laughs> he, he bruised himself. Yes. Doing that again and again. 
there's a flying kick. Obi-Wan follows it up with a kick of his own. And then later, like, Anakin just punches Obi-Wan in the head. Like, he, it, almost like he's trying to pistol whip him, whip him with a lightsaber, the hilt of a lightsaber. He, like, kind of, like, hits him in the top of the head. Like, I love it. Like, it, two people who can move mountains. They're, they, with their minds, they can think and control the, the rocks and the wind and, and animals. And they're still here just kicking yeah, each other exactly. on the top of a fucking conference room table. <laughs> At, in like, it looks like they're in like a, like, they're just in some kind of weird looking conference room you find it, like some kooky, like, uh, <laughs> right, exactly. This is where you meet when you need to go center yourself. Shit. You've come to Mustafar for your, for your spa getaway. Oh, like, yeah. Mustafar is that kind of place, which, which fits the separatists <laughs> just fine. Uh, meanwhile, Yoda and Palpatine ride his his uh, his podium platform thingy right up into the middle of the empty Senate in the most subtle imagery of all time. It's so great. We're just we're literally fighting over the the place of it. government. I think that's that's beautiful. On a phallus that's going up because the tip of the sit the, the tip of the the Senate dais is. Uh, you know, <laughs> Do you get it? A shaft and it's beautiful. The tip is a bit bigger than the shaft, if you know what I'm saying. Do you get it? Sl- slightly less subtle than the bit in Attack of the Clones when Anakin and Padme were rolling were cavorting around in the fields and she wound up on top of him and then we cut to the the like the pterodactyl thing on Camino bursting out of the water the greatest dick joke in movies yeah exactly um and you know i I would be remiss if i did if i if i didn't say that this is not the first time there's been a lightsaber duel on the senate floor in the tales of the jedi um the sith war which is uh a series from the 90s that occurs in the old republic uh you get a lightsaber duel between uh exar kun who's fallen to the dark side becoming a sith lord and his old jedi master voto sias bosk who is a uh basically a crab guy like a crab creature um and he fights with a force imbued stick like he he's able to stop lightsabers with it, and this is where Exar Kun unveils the double bladed lightsaber ah, uh, right, for right, which right. Lucas took the idea for Maul's lightsaber. I remember he, you telling me about this. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that's great. I've always uh, you know I always like that. I doubt Lucas was specifically thinking of it, but you know it's still fun. <laughs> it's great, and especially great because I think about like when we were first introduced to the Senate chamber in the movies. That that scene with uh, Padme and the Trade Federation in the Phantom Menace, where they just they just slowly broke her apart just by like using bull- bullshit rules and regulations and mm-hmm. decorum, and she got so frustrated that she she uh, she pulled down the the current chancellor, and just like that that was how they used to fight in this room was just with with the the words and knowing the system and knowing how to negotiate, and now we're just hacking and slashing at each other, which we were always doing under the surface. You know, the Trade Federation was always kind of doing that, but they had this, this, the veneer, the surface of parliamentary politics. And now that's just gone. And now we're just, we're just duking it out. It's like, you know, when they used to beat each other on the Senate floor with canes and whatnot <laughs> back in the pre-Civil War days. It's just, this is, this is just Star Wars a la Henry Clay is, is what, is what we got going on now. And then we have Anakin and Obi-Wan have that great bit where they're, the lightsabers aren't even making contact. They're just, revolving around each other which is like you know it's not the most realistic thing in the world but it it gets across how powerful they are how reluctant they both might be to actually make contact with each other at this point uh it's more like a dance than ever at that point i yeah i think what he was going for was that 
they're doing this and they're both spinning the lightsaber and normally like you know you wouldn't do that because you would just stab the other guy but they're trying to outthink each other but mm-hmm. they fight so much alike that they end up go they end up both swinging at the exact same time and block each other anyway and then they go for the force push at the exact same time because they are best friends they've they been know doing, each other too well dueling mm-hmm. like this for a decade you know and that's it's a, a great point I, like I think that I mean, like you know, if I'm being charitable, I think that's what we're going we all? for here. Yeah, you know, like, but yeah, it's pretty goofy, and you're just like, why are they spinning the lightsabers? You know, it's, such it's a, like it's a ballet, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. no, th- I do like that though, because that fits like in the beginning of the movie when they're just they're flying with each other, and you see them both kind of adjust to stay near each other because they're flying through just dozens of ships exploding. They just yeah they have a they have such a strong sense of each other and that's what that's what lends the uh, the emotion to this and yeah the, they hit each other with the force and the music swells which is something I think John Williams has always done well uh, with the force specifically that he makes you feel it when when a character uses it it makes you feel it as something tangible like there's something in the room that mm. that they're taking advantage of and naturally well, they knock each other into like this one of the panels in the room they hit the large red make the whole fucking thing sink button <laughs> that you always build into a building like this <laughs> you got to put it you got to put it in there otherwise you what what if you need to sink the place? what if you need to sink the whole thing to the lava you'll look pretty silly then won't you yeah uh, and yeah so it, it all starts going down the alarm starts going off and again just like i was saying about the invisible hand another another great subtle Work by George Lucas there, uh, Grievous' ship. At the start of the movie, it's the it's the fall of the Republic. We're seeing this huge, gigantic, complicated thing just collapse. That's what we've been seeing over the course of the movies. It also reminds me of the the great dumb bit in the opening of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Speaking of George Lucas, uh, where uh, where Indy's fighting the Russians and they they hit a panel like comically comically weakly, but still somehow yeah. just a countdown to oblivion goes off. I remember me and my friends howling at that uh, in the theaters. Which you know, it's it's a that's a goofball kind of uh, plot maneuver I can forgive uh, when it's awesome, which is a lot of this. But yeah, so I was saying about uh, Across the Stars popped up earlier in the score, and then we get Duel of the Fates uh, as Anakin and Obi-Wan are, are, are fighting. We're playing all the hits. Every every uh, bit of genius <laughs> music that we worked into this is going to come back. Last hurrah. Got to get your leitmotifs in there. And then, <laughs> we, yeah, we cut to Palpatine just cackling through his mucus and literally flinging the empty seats of democracy at Yoda like he's hurling planets at him. And it, that's always the point where I just go, this is the greatest movie of all time. This is this is just, this is wonderful. Yeah, I like in the novelization, this is the point where it goes, is like, Yoda's the the greatest Jedi, the longest serving Jedi uh, Grandmaster of the Order of all time. He's the most powerful Jedi in generations. And he just didn't have it. Like, it's like, it's making no bones. Yoda's losing this shit. He's... he's He's not beating Palpatine today. Maybe another day, but not today. <laughs> Palpatine is having just so much fun because he's like, this is so much more awesome than even I anticipated it would be. And I've been waiting for this moment literally my entire adult life. And uh, Yoda, like, yeah, at one point he thinks, you know, swords are no more use here. And he put, he takes it away, tries to fight Palpatine with the force. And then as soon as he brings the lightsaber back out, Palpatine immediately just flicks it out of his hand with force lightning. Uh, Yoda falls, and we get to we get that little shot that I always like, where we get to see his claws and close up, like scraping oh, along, yeah. like you know, tiny detail, but like that that actually holds up. Like that still looks like it's a real claw touching something yeah. real. It's it's pretty good. Yeah, I like I like that. I like that. Um, 
I love Yoda catching the lightning in his hands. Like, yeah, I, I fucking love that shit. Like Obi Wan, Obi Wan used the lightsaber to do it in Attack of the Clones, which is really cool. But then, like Yoda here, he's like, "Fuck that! I can just catch it in my palm." <laughs> right? I figured this out. I don't even need to wear like a protective catcher's mitt or anything. Yeah, just use a mirror, bounce it right back, like it's a Medusa. Uh, so yeah, Yoda falls. We see his his empty little robe flutter onto a beam, like it's just like he's literally an empty suit now. It's all over. We've we we could, we've no longer earned our Jedi robes. He didn't have that dog in him. He, he's gone <laughs> exactly. And uh, so we cut back to Anakin and Obi Wan, who who now who have now jumped onto a pipe and are fighting along it as they balance. And you you really feel that that sense of of sickening gravity and just also how dumb it is to fight here. Like even there's like a droid that passes by and like pauses and looks at them. Like like even the droid is freaked out. Like what are you guys doing? Like that droid are, lives and works on Mustafar, and even he thinks you've gone too far. Why are you here? What why are, are you, you here? What are you doing? What is this? And um, one of the reasons I think the the action in Revenge of the Sith is more engaging than a lot of the action in Attack of the Clones is a lot of it was basically co-directed by George Lucas's best slash only friend, Steven Spielberg, uh, who <laughs> obviously Spielberg is unbeatable in action in terms of uh, Hollywood action. I think only James Cameron even comes close. Spielberg's the best. Uh, that's why the opening battle in Revenge of the Sith, I think, holds up really well because he was he was looking over Lucas's shoulder going, no, you got it. Because he's got, a again, that visceral sense mm-hmm. for Spielberg that I think comes along with him being a human being, which George Lucas isn't. I think that helps. Uh, <laughs> George Lucas being from his strange dimension has other ideas. Yeah, Spielberg, he was, when he was directing this scene specifically, he said, I, I like all this because it's it's biblical and mythological, but it feels slow to me. I want these guys pouring, dripping sweat. Their hair should be smoking. Which to me, like, yeah, that's 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 why you bring in Spielberg. Yeah, exactly. And I, I always find this funny because, you know, before the prequels, Lucas fucking begged Spielberg begged him to direct them lucas like i don't want to direct this shit do this do this for me and spielberg was like no absolutely not and so lucas went to ron howard and ron howard was like are you fucking kidding me you know he's much nicer than that but you know and lucas (laughs) keeps coming back to spielberg and i'm just like i finally like imagine like lucas in the background cackling he's like "Ah, i finally got your ass steve I knew I'd get you to do it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. And Lucas had, you know, he's had a couple different people he had in mind for Return of the Jedi that uh, <laughs> uh he is he is self-aware to the extent that he he knows that he that the director's chair should involve someone with more kind of a uh, a sense of quick pacing and like yeah. uh, uh, intensity, which Lucas sometimes pulls off like in this scene. But I think he knows yeah. himself well enough to know that's not his strong suit and that other people are needed to kind of punch up his stuff in that way. He doesn't always listen, but I think he knows enough that they need to be there. It also brings to mind the story of how uh, he took the script for The Phantom Menace to uh, director Frank Darabont. And Darabont uh, read through the whole thing and he handed it back to Lucas and was like, it's great. I have no edits whatsoever. He's like, I'm not touching that shit with a 10-foot pole, man. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go make the mist instead. Uh, yep. Exactly. Good for him. Uh, yeah. But yeah, you do get that, I think, that that visceral edge with Spielberg, and that's how we get like the probably my favorite shot of this whole sequence, when it's just Anakin and Obi-Wan just like locking arms as the lava mm-hmm. geysers up behind them. If you're going to make like a fancy box set of the Star mm-hmm. Wars prequels, like, you know, Criterion Collection brings you the Star Wars prequels, like that's what <laughs> you would do for the cover, it would be like, a, like an oil painting of, of that shot. Uh, yeah. It's just, it's just perfect. Meanwhile, Yoda is crawling through a little pipe, like the gerbil that he is. <laughs> 
at least the clone troopers are looking for him, which they didn't do for... I love the bit earlier in the movie where Obi-Wan falls into water, and the clones are like, yeah, clearly he's dead. Oh, which, yeah, we done. got him. We Great job, everybody. No good, notes. Good, good work. High fives all around. He, he, fit, he Commander Cody, uh, rings Palpatine <laughs> back. Palpatine's like, hey, what's up? He's like, yep, Kenobi's dead. Ah, oh, great. And Palpatine's like, he's not fucking dead. He's no, like, I can feel way. him in the force. Cody, you lying ass bitch. That's why you're. Uh, that's why you end up on Tatooine. No, I, I don't. That's not real. I think that's a fan theory or something. Oh, that'd be yeah. it's exactly. He gets he gets demoted and sent to sent to Siberia. Yeah, uh, poor much. Commander Cody. But yeah, so at least at least they acknowledge that. Yeah, unless we see Yoda's body, Yoda is not dead. And yeah, everything's collapsing on Mustafar. I love the bit where where Anakin and Obi Wan have to stop fighting and they both like <laughs> yeah. have to hide from the lava. Both with the expression like, "Oh, we we may have gone too far in a few places. We this this might be too much even for us." But uh, then, but even then, when they get on, they get on the you know the big part of the building they destroy. They get on the lava Titanic. They're sailing down the lava river, and <laughs> yes. they're just they're still trying to stab each other because it's just that's the that's how ragged and intense their feelings are at this point. That even though the Republic is just and this huge building is just collapsing to pieces, we still gotta we still gotta get each other. Watching this, it's interesting the the contrast between these two fights, where you have the the kind of the red versus green of Yoda and Palpatine, which we've you know we've seen versions of that before. We saw that in, in Return of the Jedi, but between uh, Anakin and Obi Wan, it's blue versus blue. It's the it's the same color. It's the same side, and it's like all the you know all these little these little symbols and signs, the little moral binary that we see set up against each other in earlier movies, and it's just like it's all all collapsing. And now we're, we have friends turning on friends and blue lightsabers fighting blue lightsabers. And it's just, it's just all falling apart. Yoda has his little bit that's exactly like uh, Luke in Cloud City getting rescued by the Millennium Falcon. Yes. He falls out the little hole. Yoda put, puts a little more planning into it. He says, uh, precise timing we will need. It's like, you know, Yoda has seen Empire Strikes Back. He doesn't want to be dangling from the upside down yeah. weather vane or whatever it is that Luke has. There. He's yes. like, I'm going to wait until you are beneath me before I come anywhere near that hole. <laughs> Good for Yoda. He got, he got, he got one thing right. Only one thing, but yes, yeah, he needed a gerbil ball that he could just roll in. He could just roll into the hole, you know, oh like a gosh. little. Now that's how he would have beaten Palpatine. Yep, yep. But if he Palpatine... had a ball, it would have been over. Absolutely, Palpatine. That should that should be the canonical explanation where Palpatine gets the idea for the Death Star, as he sees Yoda in a little ball and goes, "Interesting. What if I had a much bigger ball around me, made of yeah. guns and steel?" And that's how we got it. Uh, so Yoda completes his little character arc when he's flying around with Senator Organa and he's, you know, he says, I have to go into, into exile. I must go failed. I have, uh, which Obi-Wan then immediately echoes out on the, out on the lava river, uh, that he's, he's failed Anakin who, you know, sometimes I think maybe we give, yeah, maybe we're too generous with Lucas and his deconstruction of the Jedi, but lines like that is he's clearly working in no, a I... reminder that like, you know, how do you think Yoda and Obi-Wan got to the position they were in, in the original movie? Like, yeah. do you think, you know, obviously everything couldn't have gone well. Or they wouldn't be in, they wouldn't be hermits living in caves. So I think one of the things that Lucas understood was like in Empire, if Yoda is in hiding and he is a nine hundred year old master and was the Grand Master of the Order, he had to fuck up really bad to get there. And that's something that people forget when they look at what Yoda is doing there, because like he's trying to put the best face on this. Like this was our order; it was great. We helped everyone, you know. Use it only for defense and everything. And in the back of his mind, he's like thinking about the Clone Wars and how much they fucked up and how many people and droids he killed like do you know and and all of the shit that f they fucked up like in order 
to get that guy there. He either has to have failed or just abandoned the effort completely. And you think a lot of people forget that. So they kind of like, you know, they see it and they're like, you know, how could you do this to Yoda? Like it, in order for Yoda to get there in the first place, this had to, he, he had to fuck up. He had to fail. And I think like, I'll be honest, I, th- I I think we might undersell the extent to which Lucas was like, I am go I am setting out to make you understand that the Jedi fucking suck. They fucking suck. There are like three good Jedi in <laughs> all of the prequels, maybe three, and it like the rest of them are all compromised war criminals. Anakin, Obi-Wan, Yoda, Mace, all of them. And it's there and it's there and it's especially there in the Clone Wars. And it's just like, look, these people fail because they fucked up. You can't have an emperor take over after the Jedi helped rule for 25,000 years unless they fucked up really bad. Exactly. And that them being in charge is the key element to that. Because I think if you're a kid watching the Star Wars movies for the first time, it might feel like Obi-Wan and Yoda are in a kind of just like a more kind of peaceful monastery kind of retreat. You know, they've they've mm. they've they've retreated to kind of find themselves and be in touch with nature. And you kind of get the vibe that that's how the Jedi are. And but then you're reminded in the prequel, it's like, oh, no, they ran the place. They were in mm-hmm. the government. They were soldiers at one point. So, yeah, that's not a that's not a peaceful retreat. That's exile for for Obi-Wan and Yoda. That's a that's a fall from grace that we actually get to witness. And yeah, I mm-hmm. think that's that that through line I think obviously comes through strongly here when Anakin has his own from my point of view line. You know, from my point of view the Jedi are evil. Got to say like the squeaky voice teen in the Simpsons. From my point of view <laughs> the Jedi are evil. <laughs> Which you know, yeah, like I mean, obviously the the big blind spot there is that Palpatine is worse. So that you know, that's why yeah. Anakin has to tell himself stuff like I'm going to kill Palpatine and take over the galaxy with Padme because he can't he can't really bear to look at who he's teamed up with instead, but he wouldn't. That's that's one strong through line I really like in the prequels is that Anakin would never have gone anywhere near Palpatine if the Jedi had treated him like they should have. Yeah, yeah. And I also like that this turns the Obi-Wan line on its head some more because Obi-Wan is now quoting his best friend who's fallen to the dark side in order to explain to Luke why he lied about cutting up his best friend who had fallen to like yeah exactly that's great like it just cut like it completely like you're quoting his dad to say why you lied about his dad that's a great way of putting it like it's like almost like obi-wan is acknowledging that anakin had a point by by using that that same line and yeah you know anakin obviously has you know he bears responsibility for everything he does obi-wan was totally right when he said earlier that you know, you turned Padme against you. I didn't turn Padme against you. You did that. You just did it. But Obi-Wan... I, I only figured out you guys started fucking like eight hours ago, man. How did I do I am anything? clueless. I am not the mastermind you think I am, sir. Yep. Obi-Wan thought he was so smart. He went, Anakin is the father, isn't he? And we all go, no. 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 Like, later they, Mace Windu, they like, Yoda's the dad. Thankfully, they like... Well, there was a, a deleted scene where uh, Obi-Wan's like, I, I've known I didn't do it because, you know, I respected you guys or whatever. Easy to and fit then that later, in there. Yeah. Later, like we find out that he kind of knows, like, you know, as well in the Clone Wars. But it's like, <laughs> really? <laughs> like how anyone in the, wor- in the world, like the most clueless 
planet on ever like all these people are like wow she's pregnant i wonder who the dad is maybe the guy that she sneaks off with all the time right the guy you were kind of worried about sending her off with in the last movie but you know that's the the explanation you can give for it is that they're they're a bunch of sexless monks and they're just not thinking about it like this doesn't come up with them many jedi have their own individual stories to tell and have been told but like that's their perception of themselves yeah and they're, they're it's, it's the the kind of fall from innocence. Spielberg was comparing it to to the Bible. There's the biblical kind of fall. There's also the um, there's also echoes of of the the Knights of the Round Table of the fall of Camelot here. When you look at the Jedi's as literal knights, Anakin as a kind of a, a Lancelot figure, or even a Mordred kind of figure, and then Lucas mm-hmm. Galahad. So all of that, all of that, Lucas, all of his big influences he loves, he's he's tying into this. And then of course we get one of my favorite parts of the duel, which is the high ground. I love I love Obi Wan in the high ground. First of all, because of how barely high ground it is. Yeah, uh, it's not on top of a mountain. But I just love I love how after all this fight, Obi Wan is so assured that I've I've solved fighting checkmate. There's nothing you can possibly do. And I just also love that like yeah, Obi Wan, you might have the literal high ground, but you've just demonstrated how the moral high ground. Yeah, you you gave that one up a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, it. Uh... You know that jump that Anakin makes in order to land on the little droid uh, when the thing is falling over the lava fall? Yes. And, like, that is the most insane jump. Like, people complain about, like, the jumping in the prequels, and for the most part, I'm fine with it. But that thing, like, he (laughs) jumps, like, 50 50 fucking yards. Onto, like, like, a square inch. Yes, and I mean, like it. You know, we've already suspended disbelief to get here oh, anyway. Sure. You know, so whatever. In a thousand ways. But, yeah, yeah. But the the only way this one is even partially plausible is because Anakin is just trying to do a standing jump. Like he's like he doesn't take he doesn't even take a step back. Like get two steps on the little floating platform. He's just nope taking a fucking broad jump right up to it and Annie and Obi-Wan just literally has to hold up his lightsaber right. and it's not even Anakin's, a swing it's just the yeah, hold yeah let let Anakin's like body lean up against it and just get dismembered to shit except for his robot arm of course we got to leave the robot gotta have, arm yeah he's exactly ironically you keep the one that's not yours but yeah i mean doesn't that doesn't that sum up Anakin is you just you put a horrible thing in his path and wait for him to walk himself into it because yeah. he will and yeah you know obi-wan obi-wan himself made a, an even harder jump against darth maul so i guess that's why he knows how to defend it really darth maul should have should have <laughs> should have been able to do this too yeah uh, but no obi <laughs> obi-wan's a step ahead of him and uh, oh man you got to you got to love you got to love the internal consistencies of these movies like on the one hand like yeah i can justify it you know but at the same time like he did this thing against Maul, and Maul didn't think of just being like, boop, like sticking out his lightsaber and and literally just bisecting Obi-Wan right. from top to just bottom. slowly falls apart, exactly yep. like when lasers yeah. run through you and you collapse. Yes, exactly. yes, exactly. exactly. Can picture it now. But yeah, so then Anakin loses three of his limbs at once, and that is that is still effective. Like, that is still brutal to watch him slowly mm-hmm. catch fire oh. as he crawls upwards. Uh, makeup artist Dave Elsie has said that this is his this is his favorite work he got to do in the prequels. My favorite prosthetic makeup is Burnt Anakin because I feel like I've been researching this makeup since I was a kid and first saw Return of the Jedi. We'd seen Vader without his helmet at the tail end of the first trilogy. I always wanted to know how he'd gotten so badly scarred, the reason he had to wear the Vader suit. I had read 
because Lucas was talking about, as you said, that he had fallen into volcanic lava and had always in my mind been creating prosthetic makeup that demonstrated these devastating injuries. I feel like I've been designing this since I was 15. And Hayden was fantastic in the makeup. He embraced it, brought it to life. He added a sense of dark evil. And yeah, this is this is the moment when he starts, obviously starts looking and sounding like Darth Vader as well as acting mm-hmm. like him. Yeah, and he the, he finally gets the Sith eyes. Finally, yep. he finally gets them. You you are my brother, Anakin. I love like I Obi Wan is hoarse. Mm-hmm. He's mad. He's so fucking hot and sweaty. I'm on this. I'm I'm on the side of a goddamn volcano, and <laughs> now I have to smell your burning body. And 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 at the same time, like he's just so mad, but he still loves. Anakin like he still like he he does like and I mean they use it to shitty effect in the Kenobi um show but like I do always find it affecting that Obi-Wan can't kill Anakin like he just can't do it he he won't do it it's not it's never going to happen there's no universe in which he kills Anakin and I yeah I've I've always liked that yeah, and this is this is one of the uh, rare cases when Lucas was a good actor's director that I think he he let them find the run rhythm, he let them change the dialogue, which he did much more in the original trilogy. Obviously, mm-hmm. he had less clout, and I think the actors, the younger actors, I think were probably a little intimidated uh, in mm-hmm. the prequels. But uh, uh, Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford had that famous line in the original trilogy about Lucas's writing: "He's like, you can write this shit, George, but you can't say it." Like there's just there's stuff that sounds because I think even the a lot of the more kind of cringeworthy lines in the prequels I think probably sounded good on paper like they made sense when he wrote it I just yeah they don't they don't always translate to uh, human beings expressing them as emotions but this is one of the exceptions where it's so simple what Obi Wan says you are my brother and I loved you but it really it really hits it hits every time and it even though Anakin was doing all this for Padme not Obi Wan this feels like the character arc climax of the whole movie like it was a this is what it was all leading to is this this expression of that and mcgregor really sells it like i can't even though i was here for all of it i don't understand how we got here i don't understand how i'm looking at the corpse of this almost corpse of this man i loved and i have now left him this way and and christensen just howling i hate you in response to i love you he howls i hate you it's it's very simple but just really effective yeah, and the "You Were My Brother" Anakin line is is a culmination of something that Lucas was playing with in the Phantom Minutes because the title of Duel of the Fates, the 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 title refers to the fate of Anakin, whether he will get a father figure in Qui Gon who can st- who could shield him from the evil of Palpatine becoming his father figure or he's going to get a brother figure in the form mm-hmm. of Obi-Wan and he in in a lot of ways Obi-Wan is his dad but in a, in a lot of other ways like they are just brothers like he's the older brother he's protecting his younger brother and this is the culmination of this if he had had Qui-Gon it might have all turned out differently. Like he, he might have been able to shield him from Palpatine, but you know, Obi Wan couldn't do it. He was too young, and he should have never been thrown into it in the first place. You know, now you're here. Your best friend's uh, smoking on the side of a thing, and you, you, you have to pick up his lightsaber. You know, I, I love that Lucas focuses in on him picking up the lightsaber. Like, eh, eh, it's coming back. It's coming back. You know he's going to do it. Yeah, exactly. This is they'll fight again. They'll be they'll be poking at each other at the Death Star years down the line. 
<laughs> space fencing. Exactly. God damn, this is boring. Will you two do something? <laughs> Come on, flip like you used to. Get the yeah. high ground. <laughs> the best part of that duel is still when uh, when he when he kills Obi Wan and Obi Wan disappears and Vader steps on his robe. I love that Like shot. a guy trying to put out like a flaming bag of shit. Like he's <laughs> like, what the fuck? Where did he go? <laughs> right. Like he's expecting like a bunch of mice to like just kind of yeah, crawl out yeah, of the yeah, robe. Yeah. Man, all that like, old was... wizard with his magic tricks. Oh, god damn it. Yeah. Yeah, you you might find it odd when you ask a Star Wars fan what their favorite in-universe novel is, and they tell you that it's the novelization of episode three, Revenge of the Sith, by Matthew Stover. That seems ridiculous. There are 40 years of novels to choose from by dozens of excellent genre fiction writers that cover over 25,000 years of lore, and the answer is... A fucking movie novelization? <laughs> you saw the goddamn movie. Why do you need a 450-page summary of it? Well, first, just let me say, how fucking dare you, pal? Uh -huh. Nah, but all kidding aside, the reason for this <laughs> is because it's just a really well-done book, and it expands upon some of the cohesive glue that the movie might be lacking. Like, why Anakin cared so much, and so specifically, about the title of Master. Well, it turns out it was because he wanted access to the top-level holocron room uh, that's only available to Jedi Master, so he could figure out a way to save Padme. Uh, or how in the world Obi-Wan missed Padme and Anakin becoming an item uh, up to that moment. Kenobi actually explains that he had always known, but kept it quiet for their sake, and this also appears in a deleted scene that I mentioned and is later confirmed in Season 7 of The Clone Wars. You get the idea. The promise and world-building of the prequels are fully realized in this book, and it adds so much to subsequent rewatches of the movies. One of the real treats of the book is this recurring motif that Stover uses, where he puts you directly into a character's mindset. The sections usually start with something like, this is Obi-Wan Kenobi right now, or this is Padme Amidala. And they're used uh, on a variety of characters to just provide greater inter interiority. However, Stover employs it most often and to the greatest effect with Anakin using it to give us a direct view into his psyche and why he'd make so many stupid decisions. You see his confusion and hurt feelings and angst and love and hate. Throughout all this, you can see Anakin's twisted ideas of how things will unfold, why he thinks that, and you do kind of feel bad for him. The Jedi treated him like shit regularly, ignored his pleas for help, generally used him as a pawn in their political struggles uh, with the Republic, and would damn him for falling in love and conceiving a child with his wife. Mace Windu, who no one actually seems to like that much, constantly <laughs> goads Anakin and is a really big asshole to him at all times. Even Palpatine's honeyed words about the failures of the Jedi all contain kernels or even whole nuggets of truth. It suddenly makes sense why he cared for Palpatine as a father so much, and why Kenobi being sent away to kill Grievous really was the thing that allowed Anakin to finally be turned to the dark side. And yet, Anakin is still the villain in all this. The trauma and sadness at the heart of Anakin's fall was still his doing. He still made these choices and did these evil deeds, and that simply can't be laid at anyone else's feet. And this tragedy all finally culminates in the last two pages of the novelization. After the Jedi have been genocided, the duels have ended, Padme has died, and our remaining heroes are ready to go into exile. It is here, at the novel's denouement, where Anakin quite literally looks upon his work and despairs. I'm going to read the passage in a second, and you'll notice that it's 
almost seems like Stover is going to explain away everything Anakin did in the beginning of the quote. He's going to excuse Anakin for choking out his pregnant wife, fully blame the Jedi for Anakin's crimes, and turn Anakin into a martyr instead of a villain. But then the tone changes, and it becomes a denouncement of Anakin in full. Stover breaks it down to the core, and the truth is, no matter the circumstances that led him here, no matter the choices of others, no matter how badly Palpatine deceived him, the Chosen One did this because, on some level, he wanted to, because he deluded himself into thinking he had to, and now he has to live with the consequences of those decisions, knowing that he killed Padme and slaughtered children and murdered his friends. And he has to live with it forever. This is how it feels to be Anakin Skywalker. Forever. The first dawn of light in your universe brings pain. The light burns you. It will always burn you. Part of you will always lie upon black glass sand beside a lake of fire while flames chew upon your flesh. You can hear yourself breathing. It comes hard and harsh, and it scrapes nerves already raw, but you cannot stop it. You can never stop it. You cannot even slow it down. You don't even have lungs anymore. Mechanisms hardwired into your chest to breathe for you. They will pump oxygen into your bloodstream forever. Lord Vader, Lord Vader, can you hear me? And you can't, not in the way you once did. Sensors in the shell that prisons your head trickle meaning directly into your brain. You open your scorched pale eyes. Optical sensors integrate light and shadow into a hideous simulacrum of the world around you. Or perhaps the simulacrum is perfect and it is the world that is hideous. Padme, are you here? Are you all right? You try to say, but another voice speaks for you, out from your vocabulary that serves, that serves you for burned away lips and tongue and throat. Padme, are you here? Are you all right? I'm sorry, Lord Vader. I'm afraid she died. It seems in your anger you killed her. This burns hotter than the lava hat. No! No, it is not possible. You loved her. You will always love her. You could never will her death. Never. But you remember. You remember all of it. You remember the dragon that you brought Vader forth from your heart to slay. You remember the cold venom in Vader's blood. You remember the furnace of Vader's fury and the black hatred of seizing her throat to silence her lying mouth. And there, in one, and there is one blazing moment in which you finally understand that there was no dragon, there was no Vader, that it was only you, only Anakin Skywalker, that it was all you, is you, only you, you did it, you killed her, you killed her because finally, when you could have saved her, when you could have gone away with her, when you could have been thinking about her, you were thinking about yourself. It is in this blazing moment that you finally understand the trap of the dark side, the final cruelty of the Sith, because now yourself is all you will ever have, and you rage and scream and reach through the forest to crush the shadow who has destroyed you, but you are so far less now than what you were. You are now more than half machine. You are like a painter gone blind, a composer gone deaf. You can remember where the power was, but the power you can touch is only a memory and so with all your world destroying fury it is only droids around you that implode and equipment and the table on which you were strapped shatters 
And in the end, you cannot touch the shadow. In the end, you don't even want to. In the end, the shadow is all that you have left. Because the shadow understands you. The shadow forgives you. The shadow gathers you unto itself. And within your furnace heart, you burn in your own flame. This is how it feels to be Anakin Skywalker. Forever. Woo! That was great. Yeah, I remember, I remember reading that book just casually. I just like saw it in a in a bookstore. It was used, and I picked it up along with a couple other things. And I was just reading it, and I realized, oh, this is actually a book. This yeah. has a distinct style to it, and it's very emotional. And yeah, that the the dragon metaphor that he brings up at the end there—that's that runs through the whole book. It's a way mm-hmm. of Anakin's way of thinking about his feelings and how they feel like something kind of exterior to him, and how he doesn't know how to control them and thinks he should as a Jedi. And I love that ending because it gets at what we were talking about earlier, the, the the sophistry about Anakin and Darth Vader being two different people. And, you know, at some level, that idea lets Anakin off the hook because, like, it's mm-hmm. like a like a like something possessed him, a, a malevolent spirit named Darth Vader. And there he has to acknowledge that, that that's not real. It was only ever me. I'm still me, even though I'm, you know, I got I got my robot suit on now. That that intense uh, intimacy is something I think that that comes through in the movie, but I think is is even more is done even better in the book. So I definitely yeah I definitely recommend the novelization to anyone who hasn't read it, especially if you enjoy the movie. I think it I think it does an even better job. Yeah, it uh, yeah. There's this whole thing like young Anakin sees um, he's with Obi Wan and they see like a galaxy or a star finally implode and Anakin's so shocked because he doesn't understand that stars can die. Like how can that, how can, how can that something that powerful, that big die and the dragon in his heart, uh, you know, creeps up and says, everything dies. And it's, you know, it's that dragon metaphor that keeps coming back when, when his mom died and when Padme dies and when, you know, and, um, And when, you know, everyone around him dies and everything does this and it's, you know, it's the dragon was real. It was just the dragon was his fear and he Mm -hmm. let the fear win like that. Like that's the tragedy of Anakin is that like he didn't have to do any like he he didn't. He could have stopped, you know, but. It's not how it goes. Yep. Even even more than Obi-Wan, Anakin defeated himself. Like we were saying, Obi-Wan even barely takes a swing even at the end of the fight there. Anakin mm-hmm. Anakin fully did this to himself, and that's that becomes kind of the ghost of the journey you see with Vader now in the original trilogy is, is making, making his way back from that uh, with Luke's help. So that, I think, is going to uh, uh, wrap us up for this episode on Revenge of the Sith. Luke, thank you so much for coming on. I was I was eagerly looking forward to this one and had a great time, so thank you. Well, thank you for having me on, and I look forward to, come, uh, to coming on the main show and doing the Blood Raven episodes whenever you get to them at the end of uh, Dance with Dragons Absolutely. in 2037. <laughs> <laughs> whenever we get to them, you will, you will be there. That will be great. I love the, I, the, the brand and Blood Raven stuff is so great. I just wish we had more of it because it's... Yeah. That's incredible shit. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you so much for your support every month. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can shoot us an email at notacastasoiif at gmail.com or find us at notacastasoiif on Twitter or Instagram. And you can find me at Porquentin on Twitter. And Luke, where can the fine folks find you? 
You can find me uh, at Luke is Amazing on Twitter, uh, and you can find my podcast, uh, We're Not So Different. It's about medieval history. Uh, you can find it uh, wherever you're listening to a uh, podcast, um, and uh, you can find it on Twitter at WNSDPod. Thank you so much for having me on again. Absolutely. So I got one more episode to cover in Revenge of the Sith, kind of wrapping up the last story threads, the last uh, 10 minutes or so of the movie after, after the duels are done. That'll be coming out next month, and then I will be taking a one-month break from uh, Star Wars because I got a busy couple of months coming up, so there'll be no new Star Wars episode in May. But then in June, I will be kicking off the original trilogy, and my first episode on that I'll be doing with Manu, uh, my co-host from the regular cast. He'll be coming on. To, to talk the, the opening of the first Star Wars movie with 3PO and R2. That's going to be a great time. I, I, I would say it's it will answer the question of who among us is the 3PO and the R2, but unfortunately I think me and Manu are both C-3PO. I think <laughs> that's just unfortunately the reality. One of you, neither of you holds all the secrets to the universe and you just don't ever say shit about it. Johnny, Johnny tight lips. Exactly. Sadly, no, that is, that is not either of us. <laughs> so I'll be wrapping up Revenge of the Sith a month from now. Uh, in between uh, now and then, I'll be putting out another Lord of the Rings episode for all our $5 and above patrons. Like I was saying earlier, it's going to be Mount Doom, the big Frodo, Sam, and Gollum chapter uh, where Frodo does his best. To save the day doesn't quite get there but again good thing Gollum is there Gollum always helping out true hero of the story and uh, <laughs> also coming up in a regular cast for A Song of Ice and Fire we have A Storm of Swords Arya 8 Arya's last chapter with Beric and the Brotherhood before she goes off with her new best friend Sandor Clegane and uh, after that will be A Storm of Swords Jamie 6 which we'll be having another guest on for I'll keep secret for now but we'll having one of our favorite guests on for Jamie 6 the chapter where he has his weird fever dream that inspires him to save Brienne from the bear as you do so that's what's coming up for the Nauticast. Thanks again for listening. Thank you again for your support, and I will see you next month for one more episode on Revenge of the Sith.